We'll hear argument next in number 95-1081, Ingalls Shipbuilding, Inc. versus Director, Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, Department of Labor. Mr. Salome, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if the opinion and judgment of the Fifth Circuit in this case is allowed to stand, it would defeat the purpose that Congress enacted Section 33G of the Longshoremen Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, which was to protect an employer from increased compensation liability when a worker or those claiming through him settle a third-party case for less than the compensation they would be entitled under the Longshore Act. It would also defeat the purpose for which Congress passed Section 33F of the Longshore Act, which is to give an employer credit to the extent of net third-party recoveries received by a worker or those claiming through him. The facts of this case are that Jefferson Yates, between 1953 and 1967, worked as a shipfitter for Ingalls Shipyard. He left Ingalls in 1967 and worked several land-based jobs for other employers. Fourteen years after he left Ingalls, he was diagnosed with asbestosis in March of 1981. In April of 1981, he filed a claim against Ingalls for compensation and medical benefits under the Longshore Act. In May of 1981, his lawyers, who are the same lawyers that represent him in the compensation claim against Ingalls, filed a products liability suit in federal court in Biloxi, Mississippi, seeking $6 million in actual imputed damages against 23 asbestos manufacturers who he claimed made the asbestos to which he was exposed at Ingalls. Less than a year after his compensation claim was filed against Ingalls, Ingalls wrote the district director for the 6th Compensation District and accepted his claim, voluntarily accepted his claim under the Longshore Act and agreed to pay him medical benefits and tendered to him all benefits under the Longshore Act. Salome, may I get you to clarify for me how the employer is injured here? Now, I assume the employer could file suit against those third parties who were at fault for the employee's injuries to recover payments that the employer may have made. If a burnside action was filed separate and apart from the Longshore Act, the employer would be faced, if the employer sued the 23 asbestos manufacturers directly, the employer would be faced with certain common law defenses in the burnside tort action, tort indemnity action, that the employer would not be faced in a direct action by the worker against those defendants under the Longshore Act. For example, if the employer filed a direct suit outside of the Longshore Act under the burnside tort indemnity theory, the defendants, the asbestos manufacturers, could assert certain contributory negligence features of co-workers of Mr. Yates, which would serve to reduce Engel's recovery against those asbestos manufacturers. More important than that, and this Court made it clear in Bloomer, that an employer is entitled to receive back 100% of his compensation and medical benefits plus its attorney's fees. That's provided by Congress under Section 933 of the Longshore Act. If an employer is required because of some wrongful act of a worker to file a separate 
Burnside tort indemnity lawsuit, the employer, in addition to be, being faced with common law defenses which would reduce its recovery in the Burnside action, would also be faced with having to bear its own attorney's fees and cost in the Burnside action, which Congress has made it clear in Section 933E, as interpreted by this Court in Bloomer, that the employer has its inviolate right to have 100% of its compensation in medical benefits. Well, so you say uh, you might not be made whole or as whole as you would be otherwise. How about recovering monies that you pay to Mrs. Yates out of the post-death settlements? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Your Honor, Engels approved the post-death settlements, and I think that the, the classic example of that, and why Section 933G mm-hmm. and Section 933F are so important, is that after Engels accepted Mr. Yates' claim in June of 1992 and agreed to pay him lifetime benefits under the Longshore Act, Mr. Yates and Mrs. Yates, between 1982 when Engels accepted the claim and 1986 when he died, entered into four settlements with asbestos manufacturers in that third-party case, uh, which Ms. Mrs. Yates released her wrongful death claims for Mr. Yates during his lifetime. A classic example of that is that those four settlements that were entered into between the time Engels accepted the claim and the time Mr. Yates died, where she released her wrongful death claims, totaled $30,000, which were much and less... And that money is not recoverable by the employer. That, that's correct, Your Honor, but, but the, that's exactly right, Your Honor. But the comparison that I'm making and, and the reason why Congress felt it so important for an employer to have a right to consent to a third-party settlement is that after Mr. Yates died, Mrs. Yates and her adult children, the next three settlements that they entered into after Mr. Yates died were for $105,000. Well, you know, what you're basically saying is that the rules should kick in once the employer starts making payments, but that's not, it's not consistent with our holding in a state of coward, which said um, a person satisfies the prerequisites attached to the right and thus becomes a person entitled to compensation at the moment the right to recovery is vested, that is, at the time of the injury. Your Honor, that's exactly what we're saying. And, but I think we've kind of decided, Cowart, and rather relatively recently. Are you asking us to reverse that? No, I'm not, Your Honor. I'm asking this court to follow Cowart. I'm asking this court to find... Well, I would think if we followed Cowart, we would have to say that Mrs. Yates was not entitled or qualified for a benefit until her husband's death. That, I think, Your Honor, is a source of confusion for, for the Fifth Circuit. What, what this court, as I understand Cowart said, was the right of Mr. Cowart to recover compensation arose at the time of his injury, not at the time that the employer acknowledged liability under the Act and not at the time that he was found entitled to adjudication under the Act. This court found in Cowart, as I understand Cowart, that his right to recover compensation arose when his injury arose. And we were simply saying that that, that that principle should hold true for those claiming through Mr. Coward, that the right of the worker and the right of those claiming through the worker arising, arises at the time of the worker's injury. But do you think that Coward would make Mrs. Yates a person and entitled uh, to compensation uh, as soon as he knew he'd been exposed to asbestos? I, I am because they might divorce, she might predecease him. 
I didn't think that was consistent with Coward, but you think it is. I think it's very consistent with Coward, Your Honor. I think what, what, what the argument that the director has posed in the courts below, and I think the source of confusion, is to take the vesting language out of, out of Coward, take it in a vacuum, and ignore this court's holding that Mr. Coward became a person entitled to compensation at the time of his injury. The, the fact that a, a wife of a worker may divorce the fact that a wife of a worker may die before her husband becomes an irrelevant fact if that happens insofar as the employer is concerned. Because if the wife divorces, or if the wife predeceases the husband, then her unapproved third-party settlements for less than the compensation she would be entitled against the employer would not prejudice the employer because she would not have a claim against that employer. But the fact of the matter here is that Mrs. Yates entered into these unauthorized third-party settlements. Yes, but the question, uh, I'm still not sure I understand your answer, because the question is, when did she become a person entitled to compensation? Your Honor, she, she became a person entitled to compensation at the same time that her husband became a person entitled to compensation. Even if the next day uh, she died? Yes, Your Honor, because the prejudice, the prejudice to the employer well, would not be there if she died. She would not have the death claim against the employer. Her third party... Well, she would not, there'd be no prejudice to the employer unless she later became a person entitled to compensation. No, sir. There would be, there would be no prejudice to the employer until she, she claimed compensation by virtue of the occupational disease to her husband. She became a person entitled to compensation at the same time as her husband when he was diagnosed with an occupational disease. No, but supposing she did get a, a settlement uh, of her contingent claim later on, and then she died before he did, but she had that money, you know, tucked away. She got a settlement with the third party. Would the employer be prejudiced at all in that circumstance? No, that, that's exactly right, Your Honor, because... They, because he wasn't a person entitled to compensation. Well, the purpose, if these questions are asked without consideration to the reason that 33G was enacted by Congress... You sound like you're arguing the dissent in Coward. No, Your Honor, I'm arguing, I'm arguing the majority opinion in Coward, and that is... It's a very plain language, strictly literal interpretation. That is the plain language. The plain language that was, I believe the court was referring to in Coward was not the phrase person entitled to compensation. The plain language that the court was referring to in Coward, as I understand Coward, was the 1984 amendments where, the, where Congress added the language that if you don't, if a worker does not receive an employer's consent to a third-party settlement then he is bound by the forfeiture provisions of 33G regardless of whether or not the employer has paid compensation or whether or not the employer has acknowledged liability. Well, but the operative clause there was, uh, again, a person entitled to compensation. Uh, that, that operative clause, I believe, was considered by this court in the context of the addition by Congress in 1984 that they are barred regardless of whether the employer makes the payments or acknowledges liability. Let, let me ask you something about uh, the Burnside action or, or actions like that. Uh, if the employer, uh, if there's a settlement uh, with the third party uh, and the employer uh, then sues the third party, does the employer have a cause of action uh, on the grounds that the uh, uh, settlement was somehow inadequate? Or is it just, uh, it just seeks indemnity based on the fault? No, no, I believe it would be strictly based on tort indemnity. And, and that's a state law cause of action? It's a state law cause of action, Your Honor. It's been recognized by the federal courts in Burnside to be in a tort indemnity. In, in other words, the third party has no duty uh, to make an adequate settlement, no duty that runs to the employer? 
Is this, is this a strict indemnity? Is that what that, that's correct, as I understand it, Your Honor. There, there's no breach by entering into a, into a settlement that deprives the employer of I, I think that, that representing a third-party asbestos manufacturer that, that settles out from under an employer without that employee's consent runs the risk of paying twice. Well, but if that's true, then the Act does have a policing mechanism in it. It's not without teeth. Well, the, Your Honor, I believe the policing mechanism... And the, and, the the pl- and the policing will be against the third party. The third party will be well advised uh, to seek approval. That, that, that the third party and the worker would be well advised to seek approval. That's correct, Your Honor. I believe- Mr. Bloom, I, I, I'll ask what may be an embarrassing question, uh, but it goes to the reason that I'm not following your argument. You, you say... Uh, that the, in effect, for purposes of the statute, the, the wife becomes entitled or the spouse becomes entitled at the same time as the injured party. Uh, and you say that's the moment of injury. Uh, I thought the distinction was uh, that, in, in essence, the claim of the immediately injured party uh, arises because the injury is physical, whereas the claim of the spouse arises later because the injury is economic. And it does not occur until the, the support or the right to support uh, uh, is, is eliminated, uh, in this case, by, by the death. Uh, am, am I, do I misunderstand the nature of the spousal claim here? Your Honor, I believe you're, you're absolutely right on the nature of the spousal claim, but I believe that you, that you will see under the Longshore Act that a claim for disability by a worker is purely economic. He can have an occupational disease that's progressive in nature and continue to work where that disease does not for the early... So you're saying if one economic injury arises at the moment of physical injury, the other one does too? That's correct, Your Honor. I see. That's correct. And, and the Ninth Circuit in Cretan found just that. They, they, they recognized that the phrase, quote, person entitled to compensation was not defined by Congress in the Longshore Act. They recognized that person entitled to compensation was capable of several different interpretations. But the interpretation that the courts must give to the phrase is in the context of the reason that the statute is there in the first place. All right. With, with that in mind, what if we're taking the, the earlier example in which the, uh, the spouse uh, dies uh, or, or, or is divorced before the, the injured party state of the primary injured party state of death? Uh, if, if, the, if the injured party marries again, uh, does the new spouse have any claim following death? No, Your Honor, and that's a very important point. That's why we say that the rights of both the worker and those claiming through the worker arises at the time of his injury. What, what's your authority for that answer? It's section, it's section, it's dependency provision of the Longshore Act that says that it's only the dependents of the worker at the time of his injury that are entitled to recover under the Longshore Act. And that's why the Longshore Act is all based on the time, all rights of the injured worker and his family, as well as all liabilities of the employer, begin at the moment of the injury, not when he's, the worker is adjudicated entitled to compensation and not when he dies before his wife. The Longshore Act states that the worker's rights uh, and his average weekly wage upon which his compensation is based occurs at the time of his injury. It says that all questions of dependency, that is, those who are ultimately entitled to recover under the Longshore Act in the event the worker dies from an employment-related problem, those rights of dependencies are determined at the time of his injury, not at the time of his death. But they have to be dependent at both times, don't they? That's correct. Uh, That's that's correct. They have to be primarily, well, solely, the operative part is dependent at the time of his injury. 
if, if, if he were to die and he had other defendants that were not dependents of his at the time of the injury, for example, if, if he divorced his existing wife at the time of the injury and then remarried uh, immediately prior to his, his death, that wife, that surviving wife, would not be entitled to benefits. Neither spouse would benefit. Anything. That's correct, Your Honor. Now, it, uh, did you have a yes. is, is your answer or is the, the dispositive character of your answer to me affected by the fact that the claim against the third party is not or need not be purely economic? Um, uh, or, or let me put it this way: the claim, uh, if the if the if the harbor workers brought a claim against the third party, it would not be or limited to economic. That's exactly right. Whereas, if the spouse later brings one, it would be limited to economic. And well, is the does the statute when the statute refers to entitlement, is it talking about entitlement as against the third party as opposed to entitlement as against the employer? You know, last night, Your Honor, I was thinking about that. And, and, I, and looking at the purpose for which that statute is there, that, that same thought occurred to me. Because Congress could well, Congress speaks in terms of 933A, which says a person entitled to compensation need not elect his remedy. He can sue both in tort and he can seek compensation benefits, provided those benefits, those compensation benefits uh, are, are for uh, more than what he's recovered under, under the third party. But if the entitlement refers to, in effect, general tort law entitlement, then your argument would, would, would fail, wouldn't it? Well, no, no Your Honor. I, I think, as, as I read the statute, as I understand the statute, the, the person entitled to compensation, uh, uh, the, the status of a person entitled to compensation under the Longshore Act would make that person responsible for uh, meeting the employer, employer requirements approval requirements of Section 933G. Well, that's right, but if, if entitlement to compensation is really, or if the entitlement that the statute speaks of uh, is, is making reference to the tort liability, then there would be no entitlement on the part of the spouse prior to the, to the death of the harbor worker. And, and therefore, you would, you would lose. Well, I, I, I'm really, I'm not sure I follow you, Your Honor. It may be just because I've, I've, I've lost your question, but you I said think, you were thinking the same thing. Well, I was thinking the same thing in the context that a person entitled to compensation. I think Congress is looking at it in the context. You, you don't mean you don't mean when you when you refer to the person entitled to compensation, you mean just compensation under the act, not compensation uh, in a tort action. Isn't that what you mean? Well, I mean the the, the, the section 933G speaks in terms of a person entitled to compensation having to comply. With the employer recruitment. I know. That. What does a person entitled to compensation mean? Does it mean a person entitled to compensation under the Act, or does it mean a person entitled to compensation in a separate tort action? It means a person entitled to compensation under the Act. I think that's clear, okay. isn't it? From 933A, which says, uh, um, which distinguishes between uh, compensation and damages. It, it ends is liable. He need not elect whether to receive such compensation or to recover damages against such persons. It, it is clear, Your Honor. You're correct. And, and I believe that if the court, the court has to apply the same interpretation to a person entitled to compensation under 933A, 933G, and 933F. Can, can, it, you, can I ask you a couple of technical, uh, very general questions that are probably have a clear answer? Uh, is it, suppose you're a covered employer and I'm a covered employee and I'm exposed to cancer-causing substance that might or might not cause cancer 10 years hence. Now, if I leave your employee later on 
and I do get the cancer. I'm covered, right? From you, not from some other person. That's correct, Your okay. Honor. If, if it is shown, Thank that, that's right. correct. Second question is that uh, in, in the language in question, I would have thought, reading it naturally, though I don't, this I guess is decided, that it seems to apply to an employer who is paying out to an employee some money under this statute, and they have six months, the employee, to go and sue, and then thereafter, uh, you have 90 days to bring your own lawsuit if I don't. And it says as to the, and I'm trying to get an idea of the purpose of that under that incorrect interpretation, but, but that, that being so, the purpose of why do I have to go to the employer to get his approval? Because after all, if I settle for one dollar, what difference does it make? You, the employer, can go bring your own lawsuit against the third party and get all the money back that you had to pay me, can't you? No, sir. Or is that where your answer to Justice O'Connor? That's, that's correct. Okay, I got that one. That, all right, now, then, then, then the next thing that, 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 and I take it you're arguing this, that once we reject the interpretation of the natural reading of the words that we're thinking of the payout case, then I can't find any basis, hypothetically, I'm not saying really, but I can't, what is the basis for distinguishing between everybody in the world who might be hurt working for you. That is, why does a person, what's the, how would you interpret these words once you say the person entitled to compensation is not the person who has passed the 60-day starting gate, i.e. the starting gate when you start the payment. Then is it your view that that then covers anyone, whoever will be, will be, or is now entitled to compensation? That's correct, Your Honor. And you're saying your view is there's no way of drawing a line short of that. It's not the dissent in Cowart, which was, I take it, the position I said wasn't the law, which I take it, is that right? The dissent in Cowart is focusing on those people who are the people you're actually beginning to pay. That was the dissent in Cowart. Yes, that's correct. And once you're past that position, once you're saying that's no good anymore, then it must encompass anybody who's hurt. It must encompass... Working for you, I mean, you know, who might eventually be entitled to compensation. If the purpose of Section 33 is to be accepted by this court, then it... 33G would apply to every worker mm-hmm. and those claiming through, through that worker who file a claim for compensation under the Longshore Act, if they settle for less than the compensation they're entitled, third party, without the consent of the employer, they come within the requirements and the allegations of Section 33. Mr. Shalom, your petition for certiorari presented two questions, and the second of them was, does the director of the Office of Workmen's Compensation Programs have standing to respond in the Court of Appeals in opposition to a private party? Are you going to touch on that? Thank in your you, Your I, I was. Before you do, can I ask one other question? Sure. Um, in a pre, when the wife settles before the husband dies and asks for approval of the settlement, uh, how, does, how, do, how do you decide whether she must ask for approval? Because it's only if the settlement is for less than the amount she's entitled to, right? That, that's correct, Your Honor. Uh, how, how can you say that she's entitled to anything more than zero at that time when she asks for the settlement to be well, approved? I'm sorry, Your Honor. I mean, how do, what is the standard by which you know the duty to ask for approval of the settlement arises? In other words, it's less than she's entitled to. Well, if, if, if it were, the effect would be the same. If it's, I guess the criteria would be based upon her age, her husband's age, his average weekly wage, other factors that enter into the compensation liability for both the husband and the wife. Uh, when it all said and done, when the injury to the worker occurs, that employer's compensation liability is fixed at that point. Even, to, even as to the wife? Even as to the wife, that's correct. The only, the only difference is, is that when the husband dies, the payments to him stop, and the employer starts paying the wife. 
I mean, that's the only change that, that, that's occurred. There, there's some difference in the amount that's paid, but the employer's obligations is fixed at the time. But the difference is that the wife gets less than the husband? Yes, depending on the, cho- the number of children that they are. That's correct, Your Honor. If, if it's just... What if his, pre- I don't know, there are variables in there. Well, anyway, I don't want to prevent you from addressing the other issue, but I'm very much puzzled by that. Exactly what is the standard that determines her duty to seek approval of a settlement that arguably is less than she might become entitled to? But there are different factors, such as age, the compensation rate that's being paid, the number of children she has, that, that sort of thing. Very quickly, and I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Very quickly, we, the, the second issue upon which certiorari was granted was our position uh, in follow-up to this court's uh, opinion in the, in the Newport News case is that the Director of Office of Workers' Compensation Programs has no standing to participate actively in this appeal. We would submit that Section 921C of the Longshore Act only vests into persons who have, are adversely affected or aggrieved by a decision the right to appeal a case. The United States Courts of Appeals. Congress has defined person in the Longshore Act as not to include the director or the secretary of labor. The director and secretary of labor have no financial stake in this case. There is no regulation of the director. There is no function of the director that's at issue in this case. It's strictly a private dispute involving a private compensation claim between a worker and his family and employer. If there are no further questions at this time, I'd like to, to reserve the balance of my time. For Very well, Mr. Shalom. Uh, Ms. Brinkman, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, two questions are before the Court in the, this case. We believe that the first question concerning the correct interpretation of Section 33G is answered by the text and this Court's interpretation of that text in the Estate of Cowart case. The court there held that under the plain language of Section 33G, the term person entitled to compensation means a person who satisfies the prerequisites attached to the right to Longshore Act compensation. Ms. Brinkman, uh, just, uh, just last week we had a case uh, involving uh, the word uh, uh, employee in which the government was arguing that the word employee sometimes in the statute can mean current employees and sometimes can mean current or past employees. Uh, now, why can't that principle be applied here? That in some, in some provisions here, the person entitled to such compensation means the worker who was injured. But in other, in other provisions where it makes eminent sense, it can mean him or a person who will later be entitled to compensation. Not, not the person now, but one who may later be entitled. Well, Your Honor, um, we believe that in this particular case, when you look at the um, structure of 33G, there are many reasons why this um, cannot be interpreted to someone who has a potential entitlement. Um, First of all, there are many prerequisites that Mrs. Yates would have to um, meet in order to become eligible. I think this is what Justice Stevens was getting at. This is one of the reasons that a person who's actually entitled to compensation is in a very different situation than Mrs. Yates, for example. In order to determine whether or not um, she would be entitled, not only would her husband have to die, she would have to outlive him. They would still have to be married at that time, and his death would have to be caused by the work-related injury. And will the timing of his death affect the amount of, of her entitlement? Yes. Which I think was what Justice Stevens was getting at. How could we figure it otherwise? Exactly. In fact, when you um, um, project out a um, what a person entitled comp- uh, what a person would be entitled to under the Act, you can project out on an actuarial table the life expectancy of the worker. But for someone not yet entitled, you would also have to find some way to project the likelihood of the employee's death 
resulting from the work-related injury. The likelihood, if we said, or may be entitled to compensation, she would fit in that category. If we, if the words meant person now or in the future, a per, that that would be a finite group because, as just was brought out in the colloquy, you must be a dependent at the time of the death, otherwise you're out. So everyone who's a dependent at the time of death is one who may be entitled, right? Actually, uh, uh, the widow, the wife does not have to be dependent, in fact, if, if she's married and living with yes, him. Yes, but she does have to be the wife at that time. That's correct. So we, know, we, we know all the, the entire universe of people who may be entitled, we know at the time of injury. No, Your Honor, I, I'd have to say no, and I, I really want to correct, I, I think, a, um, a premise that was um, underlying the earlier argument. The worker's right to entitlement is based on disability, not injury. So at the time of the injury, that is not a person entitled to compensation. It's only when that um, injury becomes disabling and affects the um, worker's urge waning, um, er, um, wage earning <laughs> capacity, um, does that person become entitled to compensation? So under that interpretation, any employee that was ever injured might be entitled to compensation if they're um, eventually disabled by that. And I think that they're... Um, um, I, I was just making the point that the, we're talking about derivative liability and all the people who are derivative of the worker are, are known. So we're not dealing with the, the question of, well, you really can't tell until death who those dependents might be or who the spouse might be. At the time of death, you would be able to tell whether or not she was the spouse at the time of death. And that children presumably are not beneficiaries if they have reached majority at the time of death? That's correct. So you wouldn't know at the time of exposure to asbestos uh, whether the children would ever be eligible. Is that right? I believe that's right, Your Honor. Excuse me. Had you finished your answer? Yes. What about a case in which the worker becomes entitled to compensation either because it's clear the injury is disabling or you fix the point of disability and he marries someone later? Does that later acquired wife possibly get widow's benefits? Yes, I believe so. But that time, then you wouldn't know, you, you wouldn't be able to identify the universe of people later entitled to compensation, even at the time of injury. That's correct. There are actually myriad examples, adopted children, children that are in utero. There are a multitude, and that's why um, the words person entitled to compensation have a fixed meaning, we believe. And we believe it would be, um, um, every, we have every reason to believe that Congress would have wanted to distinguish people um, who were actually entitled to compensation from those who were not um, for two, at least three reasons. One is because of the calculus of the comparison of the amount of entitlement to the settlement. It's just an incredibly complex and very speculative determination. But in addition, the person settling the case is in a different um, position. If the person is entitled to compensation, they have an option and a right to file a claim for disability benefits under the Act. And what Section 933 addresses um, is a person who, on account of a disability or death, has a right to payment of um, some compensation under the Act, and it addressed whether or not that person had to choose between the options. This person, at the time of the settlement, Mrs. Yates, had no um, right to file a claim and, indeed, may never have one. Why is it that, that she could, if, suppose 33F and G don't apply because she's not a person entitled to compensation, then how does she get any money? She just gets it directly under 789, 90789, the basic requirement. Is that how she gets it? Yes, under that. Why is she entitled to that? Whereas the worker who, uh, let's say the ordinary case, 
the worker's hurt, he's paid out his paycheck. Within six months, he wants to file a lawsuit, the classic ordinary case. He goes to the employer. The employer says, I'm not going to approve this settlement. Why is that worker not entitled to the basic compensation? The statute says, if the worker won't approve the settlement under G, that he's not entitled to the F compensation. It doesn't say a word about the basic compensation. So I, that's what I'm... Do, do you see what I'm... I'm having trouble understanding if we hold with you on this, are we certain these people are going to be compensated at all? And if they're compensated, why isn't the ordinary person compensated when the employer refuses to approve the settlement? Your Honor, I, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, my answer is that the person entitled to compensation does recover. Either they settle and get the settlement amount, or they don't settle, and they have their entitlement to rights under the Act. So, so ev everyone whom, if an employer refuses to sign, the employer has to pay the full amount of compensation anyway? Yes, they have to pay the compensation that the person's entitled to under the Anyway, and that's with an ordinary worker who is hurt and they're paying out paychecks and paying out compensation. Based on disability. Based on disability. They have to, either they sign and they get the reduction of 933, or they don't sign and they have to pay the full thing. That's the employer's choice. Uh, there are many other choices, as uh, um, people have already mentioned. There's, of course, the Burnside accident that the employer can recover from a third party also. And I think it's important, your, your, um, your Honor brings up the other um, point that I wanted to make about why it would be reasonable for Congress to have differentiated between these two situations. In the situation where the person is entitled to compensation and pursues an action against a third party, the employer has a subrogation lien that this court has, has recognized under Bloomer and other cases. And that then makes sense for that employer to have notice to be able to intervene in that action, to be able to have some input because they have a vested liability and a vested right to recoup. Can I ask you one final question then? And that is this. Given your answers to what I've asked, then what harm is done if you in fact interpret the statute the way your opponents want? If you say it applies to everybody once they're hurt and could become entitled to compensation. Because then those people, whenever they sue, go and try to enter into a settlement. If the employer approves the settlement, the woman or man is fine. If the employer doesn't approve the settlement, the woman or man eventually will get their full compensation when the disability turns up and hurts them. So what harm is done, and the good would be, it, it makes sense administratively, you know, so forth. Mrs. Yates may never have gotten benefits. Um, she may have been trying to enter into a settlement at a particular time before, for example, an employer was insolvent, or she may have been trying to enter into a settlement for loss of consortium and a wrong, potential wrongful death action, which she then is not entitled to any compensation because she divorces her husband or she predeceases her husband. So she doesn't have that option. What harm is done? I, what, what harm is done? That, that, that's what I don't understand. She the only harm I can see that's being done is that you're requiring her to go to the employer Whereas in some situations, uh, that will be a vain act because she won't end up being the widow. But uh, apart from that, how is she prejudiced? It's part of the um, problem, I think, Your Honor, with what um, Congress looked at when they eventually decided to not require workers to elect remedies anymore. She's put in a situation of either um, taking a settlement that will forever preclude her from future potential um, compensation that which she doesn't know if she's entitled to or yet or being left and being left empty-handed. I mean she's being forced into a choice at the time of the settlement that um, 
she can't make. Then, then I didn't understand your answer to my question. If she goes and tries to get the settlement, like any other worker, if the employer approves it, she gets the settlement. No problem. Suppose the employer disapproves it. At that point, I thought you said that he or she or anyone would be entitled to ordinary compensation under 906789, the rest of the Act. Is that not so, or is it so? A person who's entitled to compensation would be because they have an entitlement, but if she is not yet entitled, she cannot go and file a claim. No, she only becomes entitled to compensation after her husband dies. And that's you know, that position is inconsistent, is it not, with the rule that was promulgated after the um, 84 amendments? Didn't the director take the position at that time that coverage of a death claim does not turn on when death is sustained? No, Your Honor. Um, we we um, addressed that point, I believe, and uh, it was raised in amicus brief and in our brief. Um, what the uh, director said was interpreting which employer would be liable for the compensation benefits. And under that, it's the employer who was the employer at the time of the um, Death injury. or injury, but that doesn't mean that the um, at the time of the injury that that doesn't mean that the person um, Mrs. Yates' entitlement to compensation vested at that time. There were all these other prerequisites that ha would have to occur before she could become entitled to it. Is is it clear that if we rule uh, as you suggest, and uh, the wife in this case is not a person entitled to compensation at the time she makes the settlement? Is it true that, the, uh, that when she does become a person entitled to compensation and, and brings a suit against the uh, employer, that the employer cannot offset under uh, 33F? We don't have to decide that here, but it seems to me that that is at least an open question. You don't have to decide that, Your Honor, and we do think that that's an open question. Um, I should say that once Mrs. Yates became entitled to compensation after her husband's death, she did um, obtain prior written approval from the um, employer. For well, but I was talking about offset for the previous. For the that's not before the court in um, this case. Petitioner did not seek an offset in this case. and it, But you did take a position in your brief on it. You said that they should, the words should be interpreted the same way in both sections. Yes, Your Honor, we did. We think in light of the court's um, holding in Cowart that that is required. Let me ask you a very simple-minded question. It was one that was brought up in the brief on the other side, and that is uh, if, you, if you try to envision what Congress was doing here, why would Congress want to say to the widow or the potential widow who settles shortly before the death, you can, in effect, recover twice, but to the one who settles after the husband dies, you can recover only once? What rationality is there to such a scheme? I think that it would be reasonable for Congress to have distinguished between someone who already has a vested right to compensation, a known alternative remedy, vis-a-vis um, -vis a person who only has a potential perhaps entitlement at a later point in time, um, and weighing that against an employer in the first situation, which also has a vested liability and a vested lien and entitlement to recoup, giving that employer a right to um, prevent a settlement or to participate in that settlement, as opposed to in the latter situation where the um, employer has no liability nor lien at that point in time. And we also think, again, because of the very different nature of the determinations of what compensation the person would be entitled to under the Act. In the one instance, when the person's entitled, it's a reasonable, generally knowable calculation that may involve actuarial tables. But in the other um, situation, it involves much more than actuarial tables, a lot of eventualities about outliving another person, the um, expectancy of the duration of a marriage. If I could, Your Honor, I'd like to turn to the um, second question presented, whether or not 
the director is entitled to participate in the party respondent in the Court of, of Appeal. We believe that um, the director is entitled to uh, participate under Rule 15A of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure, which states that in each case the agency must be named respondent. The, the well, that's simply a procedural rule, isn't it? Almost a pro forma type of rule. That's correct, Your Honor. I, I think. Well, why would that control the outcome of something like this? Because Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 15 addresses specifically the situation where courts of appeals are reviewing agency actions. And that rule envisioned that someone from that agency would be in the Court of Appeals as a party respondent. It's different than Article Three standing, Your Honor. Well, it, do, 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 you, do you think that, say, the rules, can, the, the, a rule could confer standing on a, par, on, a, on a respondent party such as the director here, even though Congress had not had indicated not? It's not standing, Your Honor. I think it's just like a rule about intervention. There are rules for um, parties to intervene, and the federal rules permit that. That's to bring someone as a party. But that's not giving somebody a right to petition or Article Three standing to seek judicial review. That's a very different um, scenario. I would also um, point out... Um, Excuse me. You, you, you can intervene when you don't have standing? Under, um, in the district court, under um, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 24, there are different provisions. Um, Surely you can't intervene in a suit unless you have standing. I guess it depends on how you describe standing, Your Honor. I, I think in the sense of Article 3 standing, that you're bringing a case to the court where there's a case or controversy, I don't think that's required for um, intervention. Uh, intervener has to show an interest in the... You don't think Article 3 standing is required for, on the part of the intervener? I think under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, it depends. There's varying levels of interest, and it may be that um, one person is entitled to intervene as a right. Well, surely the Rules of Civil Procedure can't confer standing in the face of the Article Three requirement. Uh, we agree with that, Your Honor. That's correct. But we think here um, the idea of having the federal agency before the Court of Appeals when an agency action is being reviewed makes eminent sense. And in the um, Court's opinion in Caputo, it talked about, um, when it did not reach express this issue, it talked about the lower court opinion in that case. And Judge Friendly's um, opinion there had pointed out that it would be a, a novel form of review of an agency action which did not include the government as a party in the Court of Appeals. Well, what about Newport uh, News case? It surely points in the other direction. Newport News um, addressed the question of whether or not, within the statutory definition of a person adversely effect, um, affected or aggrieved, the director in that particular case um, came within that. I think that um, all the parties in that case agreed, in fact, and the court reserved um, the question, even under that definition, the director could well have Article 3 standing to um, petition for review under some situation. The tax court, uh, is, when, when we get uh, cases that originated in the tax court, is the tax court a party before us? I, don't I mean, surely it's different when the agency is set up as an adjudicator. I mean, if you have a, if, if you have a, a legislative court, an, an Article 1 court, is that court a party to any proceeding of the private parties who then come before us to challenge what that Article One court did? Well, Your Honor, we believe that the, um, the board, for example, would not be an appropriate party for that very reason. The board does not have a vested right to defend it. The, 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 um, the situation here in the, the Department of Labor is very unusual. It is not a unitary scheme as is the normal scheme under most agencies where rulemaking, adjudication, and policymaking are all in the same entity. But it is the decree of, of the board. Of, of, it is not the decree of the Labor Department, is it? That, no. That, it, that entitles this, this person to compensation. It's the decree of essentially an Article I court. Under Section 921C, Your Honor, the, the Longshore Act itself makes clear that the Court of Appeals under that provision, once the Benefits Review Board 
opinion is petitioned to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals has the authority and power to modify, reverse, um, to act on that board's opinion. We think that's why it supports our view that it's not the board but the director that is named the agency under Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 15. Prior to the change in 72 where the structure of the appellate review changed, it used to be into the district court and then the um, director could, of course, participate. Um, in 72, when it changed, it no longer identified who should be the respondent. It identified it before. Several courts have pointed out that they believe in light of the federal rules of appellate procedure enactment, it was no longer necessary to identify the respondent. Thank you, Ms. Brinkman. Mr. Clark, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Uh, I am asking the court to follow Coward, a decision decided four short years ago, which we submit teaches us three things. One, in the words of Coward, there's a basic and unexceptional rule that when a statute speaks clearly to a subject, judicial inquiry is no longer warranted. And that statute, Section 33... Well, judicial inquiry is warranted as to what the statute says, I take it. Yes, sir. But interpretation beyond the clear meaning of the statute is what I'm referring to. Coward teaches us two other things. And it's right there on page 2594 of the Supreme Court Reporter and page 2595. Coward teaches us that the person entitled to compensation status must be measured at the time of the third-party settlements. And in this case, we're talking about settlements made before Mrs. Yates became a widow. At the time, she had no right to invoke the administrative machinery of the Longshore Act to file a Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Claim for death benefits. Coward teaches us a third thing, and it says this on page 2595. It says that person entitled in compensation means this, that the person satisfies the prerequisites for the right. There are a couple of misstatements that I believe are just simply wrong that have made... Mr. Mr. Clark, uh, one thing I think perhaps you can teach us, although uh, if you think it's not relevant, let us know. Uh, Why wasn't approval sought? I mean, we had one person who was clearly a person entitled to compensation. The settlement wasn't approved for the worker or for his potential widow. With Why respect, not? With respect to the pre-death settlements, all parties were then operating under the Dorsey and O'Leary cases out of the Benefits Review Board, and they're cited in Coward. And those cases said, and which is something that Coward made short work of, was that you have to be receiving compensation at the time in order to be a person entitled to compensation. That's, that's why there was no problem at that time. I might add, too. So all of these settlements were, were be, I thought, and then I'm confused, I thought uh, one of the other counsels said that some of these settlements were made after the worker was, yes, I, I think that, uh, was it, uh, Mr. Holm said. Yes, but no. they're still under the category of pre-death settlements. Settlements made during the lifetime of Mr. Cowart, the traumatically injured worker. I, excuse me, occupationally injured worker. Yes, but they, they were, none of the settlements were approved. No, although None of the pre-death settlements were approved. Yes, although some of those settlements postdated the time when the worker himself 
began to receive benefits. That's correct. And no approval was sought for those. No approval was sought. And may I add that Why no, not? Appro- no approval was required. And it's right there in the petitioner's appendix to the petition for certiorari, pages 49 and 48, and 62 and 63, is because 33G1 only applies when the, quote, person entitled to compensation, end of quote, settles for amount less than the compensation to which he was entitled. There was a Section 8I settlement in May, May 5, 1983, which determined that the petitioner, Ingalls, paid Mr. Cowart, excuse me, Mr. Gates $15,000 and kept his medical benefits open. At that point, he knew, every, all the parties knew what he was entitled to under the Act. The third-party settlements, and we're talking about the pre-death settlements, netted $18,000 plus. And correctly, the Benefits Review Board, in the, at the pages I cited in the appendix, noted that approval wasn't even required from Mr. Yates, much less Mrs. Yates, who could never have invoked the, the Administrative Machinery of the Act during the lifetime of her husband. And the point is, you have to make that evaluation at the time that the settlement is, uh, is entered into, right? And if it turns out that actuarially you were wrong and that, in fact, the worker gets more, was entitled to more from the, uh, from the employer, uh, it's too bad. You just look to the time of the settlement to determine that issue? Justice Scalia, you look at the time of the settlement under Coward to determine personal entitled compensation status. I'm not to determine about... actuarial. Yeah, I'm to determine actuarial for the claim that Mrs. Yates is advancing, which is a mix and match approach for the petitioner. You do it after the husband has died, and she at that time no. files a claim for compensation. Well, well I hope we're talking about the same thing. I want to know what time you look to for purposes of determining whether the settlement is indeed less than what the person would be entitled to under this chapter. You look at it when the person entitled to compensation makes a third-party settlement. At the time of the settlement. So you have to do actuarial calculations. Correct. Yes, sir. You have to be a person entitled to compensation first, then there's a third-party settlement, and then you look actuarial. And And what happens if your actuarial calculations are wrong and the employer is, in fact, uh, uh, liable for more than what the settlement was? Does he end up coughing it up? Uh, well, he, both the party, the actuarial determination would have to be made by an administrative judge in the formal hearing, and if yeah. either party yet take an appeal. No, no, but, but, but it turns out, in the event, it is wrong. Okay, he, he, he lives longer, and therefore is entitled to more money than we had guessed at the time of the settlement. What happens? The employer has to pay that additional amount, right? The, yes. risk, the yes. risk is on the employer. Yes, sir. Why, why, if there had never been a settlement, she was enti- would have been entitled to compensation under some provision of the Act other than 933F, right? I, I, I don't think If there had never been any settlement at all, there never was a settlement offer, your client would have been entitled to compensation under the Act, but not 933, some other provisions of the Act. My, my client would have been entitled to compensation under Section 9 of the Longshore Act for death benefits. Yeah, but not 933F, some other thing. Of course not. No. Yes, of course not. Yes, now, sir. if there is a settlement and it requires approval. Yes, sir. And she didn't get it. It requires approval. Suppose it did. Suppose you lost on that. May I be precise? It, it requires approval if uh, its settlement is less for the compensation. Yes, correct. She suppose, suppose that applied and she didn't get it. Why isn't she still entitled to, uh, to uh, compensation under those same other provisions, since G only blocks compensation under F? 
G only applies to not getting compensation under F. It doesn't apply to not getting compensation at all. So why isn't she still entitled to compensation under all the other provisions? That's what I've been unable to figure out, and for whatever reasons I won't go into, I, that will help if, me if to I understand may, that, how the statute works. I believe the shorthand answer to that yeah. is, one, is that Section 33G2 says that failure to obtain a prior written consent from the employer and carrier uh, terminates or forfeits the rights to compensation and medical benefits. And number two, the answer is that Cowart decided that issue adversely uh, to, the, to, to the position that uh, I think the situation you're addressing. Thank you. It's basically in the dissent. The point is, if you look, in, and it's right there in our briefs, pages 12 through 18, it basically says this, that even the Ninth Circuit in the Whitman case cited in our brief says, and they use the words vest, that a widow's claim for death benefits of the Section 9 vest at the time of the death of the worker on whom she is dependent. And to address Justice Ginsburg's question a moment ago with some of the other counsel, it is possible, and it's on page 21 of the director's brief, it is possible for a wife to be living separate and apart under Section 9 from her husband at the time of death, as long as it's not due to her fault and not be dependent and still be entitled to Section 9 benefits. Think of the things that could have prevented Mrs. Yates from ever being entitled to compensation. Death, she may have predeceased Mr. Mr. Yates, and Ms. Yates today is 88 years old. That can be figured out actuarially, just, 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 as, uh, just as when he is going to die can be figured out actuarially. So you could compute that into the uh, calculation, couldn't you? No? Yes, sir, you could, but what I'm referring to now is is why, consistent with the cases cited in my brief on page 12 through 18, which, which go directly opposing, opposed to what the petitioner is advancing here, as I understood it, they said that her entitlement, entitlement came, arose at the same time as Mr. Yates' diagnosis with asbestosis, which is... Thank you, Mr. Clark. Mr. Shalom, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Justice. I think Mr. it's very Shalom, important... Mrs. Brinkman gave a different answer to the question about is, uh, who is a potentially qualifying widow. She seemed to suggest that somebody who came into the picture after the injury could be a qualifying you, widow. Your Honor, that's the first thing I was going to address. I don't believe that's correct. The Act provides that it's the, the, the wife of the worker at the time of his injury that is entitled to compensation at his death. If he was not married at the time of his injury or if he changed wives at the time, before the time of his death, that wife that married the worker after his injury would not be entitled to compensation. Only the wife married to him at the time of the injury would be entitled to compensation. If the court holds as the government and as the uh, respondents want the court to hold, it would mean that no employer would be entitled to any credit for any third, car any third party recoveries made by a wife when she releases her wrongful death claims during the lifetime of her husband, they would not be entitled to any Of course, that was the rule for 12 years prior to Coward, wasn't it? I'm sorry, Your Honor? That was the rule that was generally applied for 12 years prior to Coward, wasn't it? By the Benefit Review Board. Yeah, that's correct, Your Honor. And the Benefit Review Board, since 1991, have changed their position on a person entitled to compensation four times. One in Forrest versus Director, one before the Fifth Circuit in Coward, they again changed their position before this court after certiorari was granted in Coward, and now they changed their position again for the fourth time in this case. We think it's very important to call to the court's attention, as we did in the briefing, 
that the director has passed a regulation, which is Section 20 CFR 702.281, that says that the employer approval requirements of Section 33G and the employer credit entitlements under Section 33F shall apply to every person claiming benefits under this Act. They can the employer just say no. If the employer says, no, I won't approve the settlement, says no. Then the woman never gets any money? No, that's not correct, Your Honor. If the employer says, I want to approve the settlement, she is guaranteed compensation from the employer under the Longshore Act. That's the, if the employer says, no, I won't approve the settlement, the employer has to pay the whole thing. The whole thing. Okay. That, that, so if she notifies the employer, she just notifies the employer. And at that point, the employer says, no, she gets all the money. That's not correct, Your Honor. If the employer says, no, she gets ordinary compensation. No, Your Honor. If she notifies the employer and says, I have a third-party settlement for less than the compensation I'm entitled yeah. and the employer says no, yeah. and she settles yeah. regardless, yeah. then under 33G, she would be barred. But if she says, okay, I won't accept the third-party settlement, then the very least she would get would, her, would be her full compensation under the Longshore Act. That's the least she would get. All they have to do is come to the employer and say, I have a third-party settlement. It may be for more. It may be for less. Will you approve it? If the employer does not approve it, and she does not accept the third-party settlement, the very minimum she would get. Thank you, Mr. Shalom. Thank you, Your Honor. The case is submitted.